Good morning, ABC. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name's Megan. I'm the Women's Ministry Director here at ABC, and we've got some things coming up that we want to make you aware of. Our ABC Student Ministries is partnering with other local youth groups in the county to put on a fun event called Church Arise. So this is happening here on our campus on February 9th at 645, and it's just a great time for different leaders from other churches to lead worship throughout the night. If you have students that might be interested in that, we'd love to have them join us. And you can find out more information on our website. Hey, ABC is hosting another blood drive, and this is a really great opportunity for us to come together, partner with our community, especially right now during this nationwide blood shortage. So if you'd like to make an appointment, head to the website and you can sign up there. Okay, church, we have a really fun event coming up for you. I want you to get out your phones, check your calendars. February 6th, after the 1045 service, we are having our annual ABC meeting. This is really a great time to come together as a church family. It's more like a family meeting. So come on out and join us. Uh, you'll get to see some of the behind the scenes of the workings of our church. You'll get to uh, celebrate wins with us. We'll look ahead to the future. Uh, we're also going to be voting for some elders. So um, if you call ABC your home, especially if you are a member of ABC, we really need you to join us for that meeting so that you can cast your vote um, and just be a part of that with us. So please join us. Remember, mark your calendar. February 6th after the 1045 service. We really would love to have you there. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I uh, hope you guys have a great Sunday. Hey, thanks for tuning in. If you missed last week, we're starting a series through the book of Matthew, and we're really excited about it. Today we're in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever, go ahead and turn there with me. Um, I think one of the most important things we can do as humans is try to understand where we came from. Really how our families of origin have shaped who we are. We have to go back to go forward is kind of the language. If you've ever been in therapy, it's one of the first things you start working through when you're trying to figure something out. Who's your mom? What was your dad like? Are you close? You start to see similarities and differences that are a result of the people who raised you. Uh, the people where you came from, as you either assimilate to them and to their traits and their tendencies, or you react against them. Uh, my wife, Nikki, and her mom, Julie, are basically the same person, and it's, it's like crazy obvious when we're together. So if we're over at Julie's house, like they'll have a conversation with each other, and they talk pretty much every day. We live far away from each other, but they talk pretty much every day. Um, so we're, we're at their house, and they'll have a conversation that's five minutes long, and I am sitting there listening to the conversation, and I think I'm getting it all. Like, I think I'm picking up all the pieces, um, but I'm like a pretty slow processor, and they're both so fast. And like, we'll walk away from the conversation, and Nikki will be like, did you hear that? My mom and I had a fight. And I'm like, are you serious? You did? Like, I didn't catch that. And she's like, it's okay, we, we worked it out. We worked it out together. I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, were we hearing the same conversation? Because I think I was there, but I'm not picking up on what you're picking up on. Like, they are so, like, in sync, like, telepathic level sort of communication. And it's really helpful context on a serious note to know where she came from and to know all the influences that her mom had on her and her dad had on her and their moms and dads before them. Because when we understand where a person comes from like that, it helps us understand who we are. You might notice it when someone maybe had parents that weren't so great. 
Think of someone like that. So often, those people are either not great parents themselves or they become the best parents that you know. And it's like there's very little in between ground. Like they're either the worst or the best because they're either assimilating to or reacting against the tendencies of their own parents. It helps us understand who people are. It helps us understand who we are when we understand where we came from. That's where the Gospel of Matthew starts. We saw it last week, and we're gonna to continue to unfold this idea of Jesus' origins. What was his family like? Where did he come from? What are the origins of Jesus? And here's why that's so profoundly different than any other relationship. So if I understand where I came from, it kinda of helps me understand my origins. That can only take me so far. It's, it's helpful and it's important in life. And if I understand who you are and where you came from, that's also healthy and helpful and important, but it's only gonna take me so far. But when we understand who Jesus is, the Son of God, the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form, when we understand who Jesus is, we really come to understand who we are. And that actually has the power, the potential to change lives, to transform lives, to change eternities, to change absolutely everything. So as we understand who Jesus is, we understand who we are. That's a big part of this book, the book of Matthew. Learning who Jesus is, and then in turn, learning who we are and who we're made to be. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25. I want to warn us before we start to read, this is a dangerous passage because of how familiar it is. When you have a passage like this that is uh, read, that, like you, you've heard Linus quote it and, and read it, you, you think of Mariah Carey hitting the high note in Oh Holy Night, like, like there's a sentimentality to it that honestly is dangerous because we think we know everything about this passage. We think we know everything it has to say, everything it has to convey. I just want to warn us against that as we read it. As we read, would you just be prayerful that you would have fresh eyes and fresh ears and hearts to receive something from the Lord in a really familiar story. Here's verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh-oh. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. That's Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Let's walk through it um, piece by piece here, starting at the beginning of verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ 
took place in this way. The title of the message today is The Genesis of Jesus. Here's why. The word birth here at the beginning of verse 18 is the Greek word genesis. And it's the same word that was actually at the beginning of the chapter with the genealogy. That's where the word genealogy comes from is the word genesis. It means the beginning, literally the origins. Where did this come from? How did this come to be? This is the genesis, the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus, the the origin story of Jesus. You keep reading. So his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. We'll talk about betrothal in a second. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let's imagine a very different culture than 2022 West Coast, California, okay? Now, what would still be considered scandalous by most people's estimate, not everybody, but by most people, be considered scandalous. This was absolutely earth shattering in this first century Jewish context. For some context for this first, marriages were arranged here. It was way too serious a decision to be left to the human heart, especially uh, to the young teenage human hearts. Mary was probably in her mid-teens and Joseph might have been a few years older as he needed to make money for the bride price. How it would work is fathers would engage their children from a pretty young age and then they would be engaged to that person to be married as they sort of grew up together. During this engagement period, the young woman could break it off if she was unwilling to marry the man and the man could break it off especially if she had not kept her virginity. That was huge. So later on, they would enter this betrothal period uh, for one year before the official marriage. And this was maybe more like our um, idea of engagement, except for this was absolutely binding for them. During that period, even though they couldn't live together, they couldn't sleep together, they couldn't even be alone together. Like someone always had to be chaperoning them. But still, the community, for all intents and purposes, they considered them husband and wife. That's important because in the next uh, couple lines, you see that Joseph resolved to, di- to divorce her quietly. Uh, and you think, how can someone divorce someone that they're not married to yet? Well, that's how. For all intents and purposes, the community viewed a betrothed couple as husband and wife. They even called them husband and wife. Now, scripture makes it clear that Mary was in a really hard spot. But I want to be clear that Joseph's spot was not any easier in this moment. So first, the emotional process of suspecting an affair. Just lay that out there, call it as it is, and just think of that for a moment. So first, Joseph is reeling, going through the emotional process of suspecting an actual affair. Mary, come on, you know, like how, how does this happen? Like we haven't, like I, there, there's no explanation to this. And we have to take the word, the the name Holy Spirit out of the text as we read to just try to get a glimpse of what he's feeling. Because they didn't know that. Like, we have the privilege of reading that in our uh, our Bibles, that she was pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit. And all Joseph is seeing is my uh, betrothed, uh, you know, bride-to-be is pregnant. We haven't done anything to lead to pregnancy, but she's pregnant. No Holy Spirit, no divine intervention. Like it's just, she's pregnant. I know how girls get pregnant. Like what is he thinking? What is he feeling? I don't know the time stamp on, on how long it took him to process through that. What he was feeling, the weight of that. But then, not only that, then Joseph is balancing the weight of the law 
and its demands, and at the same time, love for his bride. Even though that may have been an injured, bruised love at this point, it was still some love for his bride-to-be. If he was a just man, and it says that he was, he was a just man, he could not dismiss the law. Jewish law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says that she and whoever she committed adultery with, they had to be stoned. That's what the law demanded. Now, Rome had stripped them of that capital punishment. But what they could do is have public court. And if Joseph took Mary to public court, what he was doing is he would get back his bride price, but he would also get to keep his dowry or her dowry. So not only was this technically the demand of the law, but it meant that he could maybe make a little bit of money that might help soften the emotional blow. But it wasn't just about that. Like for him to do that, it was for him not only to incur the right condemnation on her, saying she's guilty, she deserves this sort of condemnation, but it was also for him to be clearly absolved from the guilt. To say this clearly is not my doing. Clearly she's in sin and I'm not. And then on the inverse, if he overlooked that, if he didn't do that, he would be overlooking something that the Jewish law says should not be overlooked. Like his hands were tied. His only other option would have been to admit guilt in this when he wasn't guilty. In turn, that means he was lying. He w- that would be for him to say, yes, it's my child. Shame on us. We were sexually impure before we got married. Shame on us. I'm just trying to help us see. This was an impossible situation for Joseph and for Mary. Does Joseph act on the justice of God or does he act on the mercy of God? We see a glimpse of his character, though, as he resolves that a private, quiet divorce would be the best next step. That might just show both the justice and the love of God. He has to divorce her. He can't not divorce her. But maybe if he does it quietly, maybe peacefully, maybe, maybe just maybe, that'll show the justice and the love and the mercy of God. That's when God intervenes. Verse 19, so her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's not lying. Now, if you're a first century Jewish reader, now you've heard the word genesis twice already, at the beginning of the genealogy and now at the beginning of the birth narrative. And now you hear the phrase Holy Spirit. Your mind probably goes to a few places in the Old Testament that mention the Spirit of God. But if I were a betting man, I would bet that ultimately your mind is going to go to the very beginning of Scripture, to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning. And you might have this thought, that the same Spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the waters at the dawn of creation is now in some mysterious way hovering over the womb of Mary at the dawn of recreation. That's what this is about. This moment, this is, this is creation narrative 2.0. The story of God finally come to set right all that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. But this time, Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity, he would not be creating the world from heaven but in some mysterious, bizarre sense, allowing himself to be created by the Spirit in Mary's womb, and in turn, recreating the world as it was always intended to be. Look, 
she will bear a son. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There are two things that get breezed past in those couple verses right there that arguably summarize the entire Bible, the, the entire gospel, the good news of Jesus come to earth to save us from sin. There's two things that happen right there. Number one, Jesus came to save us from sin. And number two, Jesus came to be God with us. See, this is one of those verses that like, it breezes past this, um, this profound truth in about 0.5 seconds and you're left going like, wait, wait, hold on a second. So you shall call his name Jesus in verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we keep reading, but I'm like, hold on, whoa. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Just put so plainly, so clearly, like nothing else to say. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Then it goes on for another sentence, and it says, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That, that's, a, that's a foreign idea at this point for first century Judaism, God with us. Well, no, God was with Adam and Eve. I mean, that's, that's when God was really with people, when his presence was uninterrupted and unhindered. They were with each other in a way that nobody has ever been with God and nobody ever has been since that. And then, I mean, after Genesis 3, the fall and the, and the breakdown of that relationship, the breakdown of that community, then the only way that God was with us is was through this, this really technical system of laws and and, and sacrifices, and it was a tabernacle at some point, which was like this portable temple, and it was, it was, it was fire, and it was cloud, and it was following the presence of God in that way, but, but it was very, it was very hindered, it was very separate, there was a very, okay, set apart holiness about God that, that man, there were rituals and rites in order for this specific priest to even get into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, that's just how we've always lived. And then there was the temple, and so God's presence was in the temple. Like, that was the expression of God being with us. But now you're saying this, this baby named Emmanuel, like, that's going to be God with us. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Something new is happening here. It's two sides of the same coin, that he came to save us from sin, and he came to be God with us. See, it's two things that Israel tried to accomplish throughout the whole Old Testament, but they failed. It was Adam and Eve's job originally to rule with God in perfect relationship with him, enjoying his fullness and his presence. No sin, no barrier, but they lost it. And then it was Israel's job, get creation back on track, but they couldn't get it. So it was the job of the kings, but it didn't work. Prophets, too late. The entire Old Testament is the story of how God aimed to redeem creation and set right all that went wrong and get it back on track through this chosen nation. But his people could never get it right. So there we were as a human race, not just Israel, but as a human race, infected with sin and disconnected from God. But Ephesians 2 reminds us that God was rich in mercy 
and he was great in love. And we saw last week that God did work through Israel, through that family line, but it's just not like all the times before. It's not like how anybody expected. But God did the only thing possible to actually redeem what was lost and make a new beginning. He gave himself, God, actually God, become fully man, born into a human family in the royal line of Israel, the only person qualified and able to do what God had always longed to do, to save us and to be with us. And so God made himself present. He presented himself to us. He wanted to free us from sin and give us a way back into his presence. And the way back into his presence is Jesus. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Merry Christmas in January. Okay, that's Christmas. But what do we do with all of that? So if Jesus came to save us from sin, here's, here's my thought. If that's one of, the, um, one of the biggest things Jesus came to save us, to do is to save us from sin. I just want us to ask and walk through this. What sin do you need saving from today? What sin do you need saving from today? And maybe we expand our idea of sin a bit more than, than just, I did something wrong, I need forgiveness, I need salvation from it, which is, praise God, that is, that is sin, and he offers forgiveness for that. But I, I'm gonna offer maybe a few different ways of understanding sin, this, this disease, this infection that we've been prone to since Adam and Eve fell. So what sin do you need saving from today? Number one is your sin. This is when it's all you. So when you echo the prayer of David in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It's all me. It's against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is you, like Luke 15, in a far off land, trading the love of the Father for the lies of the flesh, chasing every thrill you can find until you're sleeping alone and eating with pigs. We've all been there. But maybe that's where you're at right now as you watch this and listen to this. Maybe that's where you feel right now. You feel distant from God. You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel like the secrets that you're carrying are just getting heavier and heavier and your life's getting darker and darker, more void of light altogether. You know that God promises you joy and satisfaction, but you say, I'm gonna go try to find that over here instead. You know that, that, that sexual intimacy flourishes in the context of marriage, but you say, I'm gonna go try to satisfy that over here somewhere else. You know that Jesus can handle your greed and your anger and your lust, but you say, I'm gonna go try to find an outlet for that over here. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to take care of that on my own. I'm gonna trade the love of the Father for the lies of the flesh and the world and the devil. I love the phrase, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I mean that word happiness in its fullest, most robust sense, like the, the joy and satisfaction that your soul was meant to experience. Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is that. These aren't just rules for rules sake. These aren't just like meaningless, emotionless laws. These are like, son, daughter, I want you to flourish. I want you to live as you were designed to live with this unhindered relationship with me like it was in the garden. I have that for you. I want that for you. And sin is our unwillingness to just believe him. But 
1 John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know how many times you may have heard that, and I also don't know who just needs to hear that in a fresh new way right now in this moment. Let me read it again. Believe this with me. Be changed by this with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you just need saving from your sin today? Maybe you've walked with Jesus, but you're just still tangled up in the chains that he freed you from. Do you need salvation from your sin in a fresh way today? Or maybe you have never walked with Jesus. You've never decided to, to take up your life and to follow him. Maybe today's that day. Maybe you feel burdened, weighed down by the sin that you're carrying, by the baggage that you're carrying. Would you just throw it off today? Receive forgiveness. Receive salvation from Jesus for your sin. But it's not just your sin that Jesus came to save us from. Number two, maybe it's the sin of others. Maybe it's the sin of others. Let me explain. This is sin that, this is not your fault. This was not your bad. This was your parents' fault or your ex-husband's fault or your boss's fault. This is sin that was done to you or against you. It was transgression on their, on their end. And for some reason though, because of the twisted sickness of sin, now you have to live with the painful consequence of things that they did. Now you have to carry that pain. You have to carry the weight of the consequence for their action. You may have heard it said that Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa still lives in your bones. Okay, we are also connected. And the infection, the, the disease of sin, man, it is so interconnected. Like this crazy web of relationships. And I'm not separate from the sin of my parents and my grandparents and my friends and my brothers and my wife and my kids. We're all so connected in this way. Maybe you just need to hear today that Jesus is here to save you from the sin of others as well. Yeah, it wasn't your fault but he's here to save you from it still. Maybe you need to receive salvation from that sin. And number three, it's the effects of the fall. It's not just your sin, it's not just the sin of the others immediately in your circle, but it's the overall effects of the fall. It's not your fault, it's not your parents' fault, it's not your ex-husband's fault. Honestly, this is Satan's fault. This is the fact that you're related to Adam and Eve who chose a lie instead of the love of God. This is because you turned out to be human and just that. It's just that. I know it hurts, but, but this is just comes from the effects of the fall. Do you ever just think, man, it feels like everything hurts. Like everything in life is just painful. It's just heavy. Are relationships just hard? Is your work full of pain and burden? Work was a good, blessed thing in the garden. But when we fell, it became a painful, burdensome thing. Is your work just full of pain and burden? Does mental and emotional health just feel impossible for you? It's the effects of the fall. It's not your fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not their fault or his fault or her fault. It's just because you're human. 
and Jesus came to save us from all of it. See, Jesus came to save us from all of it. Our salvation from sin, it's not just a change of address when you die, but thank God for that because it is that. It's not just that. It's a complete recreation of who you are and how you live right here and now. Jesus came to save us and to give us that kind of life. So what sin do you need saving from today? Would you just go to him in prayer? Even as I'm talking, even pause this wherever you are and just pray to him. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus to save us from sin. I need saving from my sin today. God, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm stuck. I'm addicted. I'm full of shame. I'm full of guilt. I'm full of darkness. I need saving from that. Or say, God, I need saving from the sin that others have inflicted on me. The pain and the weight of consequence that I carry because of something they did. Or God, would you just save me from this effect of the fall? God, there is evil and there is sin present in my life. And I know it's not my doing, but it's there. God, would you deliver me from that? Would you just pray to him right now? What sin do you need saving from? But that's number one. Number two is that Jesus came to be God with us. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we take that from a Christmas sentimentalism to our daily life in January and February and beyond? Here's what I want to say, that the idea of God being with us, um, we cannot change uh, God's presence. We cannot control God's presence. He is uh, 100% present, um, absolutely ever. He's omnipresent is the word for that. But I want to say, our experience of his presence is something that to some extent is in our control. And in that way, it's kind of about our perception. See, because we know that God is present. Psalm 139 says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God, you're everywhere. We can't control his presence, but we can control how present we are to God. In some way, we can control how present God then seems to us. The, the perception that we have, the experience that we have of God's presence, we can control how present we are to God. And all I have to, to encourage us in is that we would practice that. Okay, and so maybe this feels like a, um, you know, not conventional way to kind of end the, the Christmas narrative. But my encouragement to us is to practice the way that we present ourselves to God and just see if God doesn't seem more present to us. If Emmanuel, God with us, the God of the universe who made himself present with us in bodily form, if he doesn't then seem more present to you as you practice presenting yourself to him. It's just to teach your soul to find joy in the companionship of Jesus. Just for... Um, maybe for kicks and giggles. Here's a list of examples of times when God is present with you. He is present with you when you are doing laundry and when you're doing more laundry and more laundry and more laundry. And when you stop doing laundry, he's present with you when you stop doing laundry. He's present with you when all the laundry is on your laundry chair in your room and that's where you're getting all of your clothes now instead of from the dresser, from the closet. That's your closet, it's the closet chair. He's present with you when you are driving to work. 
and when you said some not so nice things about the driver next to you in your head or out loud, and maybe your kids heard and maybe they repeated the words that you said and you said, don't say that. And they said, but you said that mom, you said that dad. And he said, don't do what I say, do what I do, whatever. When you're driving to work, he's present with you. He's present with you when you're making a nice fancy meal. He's present with you when you're making a quick not fancy meal. When you're fixing sprinklers, God was with you. When you're sitting in class, God is with you. When you're working with your hands outside, when you're in a meeting, when you're changing diapers, when you are making coffee and the coffee isn't super good so you try to make it again and it's still not good, then you make it again and maybe it gets a little bit better. He's present with you every single moment, like every single mediocre, mundane moment with the same fullness and presence and power as this moment when God said, it's Emmanuel, God with us, this baby, God with us. He's with you. He's with you in the bigger moments too. He's with you when you're in the hospital waiting room. Emmanuel, God with us, is with us when we prayed for healing and it didn't happen. He's with you when you felt betrayed and you felt alone. He's with you when the marriage didn't work because the promises that you made at the beginning weren't kept. Emmanuel is with you when you're battling depression. Emmanuel is with you when you're having an anxiety attack and you try to explain it to people and they just don't understand. He's with you when you feel buried in shame because you just gave in to your addiction again and you're like, Jesus, I thought you saved me from these chains, but I just keep on wrapping myself up with them again and again and again. God is with you in that moment. Emmanuel's with you when the lies of the enemy are sounding more and more like truth. When he's just whispering or shouting to you that you're alone, that no one really understands, that nobody gets you, that Jesus may be Emmanuel for everybody else, but not for you, not right now. In every single one of these moments, God is fully, completely present and available to you. The question for us is, how present are you to him? God is fully, completely present and available to you. The only question for us is how present are you to him? And here's where we land, just in the most uber practical way I can think. How do we make that not sound so spiritual, um, so guru-esque? Uh, I just want us to think through some very, very practical ways to becoming more present to God and just commit to doing something this week. And then just see, okay, this Emmanuel, this, this baby, in the nativity scene, as we sing Mariah Carey and as we watch The Grinch and as we wish it snowed in Atascadera and get all the sentimentalism of Christmas out of the way, this God come into human form in this Christmas narrative. Okay, what, what does that mean for me today in January and next month in February? What does that mean on a Monday morning when I wake up and just have to do it all again? How does that actually change? And what do I do? What do I do with Emmanuel? What do I do about that? Commit to doing one of these things as you practice being present to God. Here's some ideas. Before I touch my phone in the morning, I will lay awake for five minutes and pray. Just say something like, God, here I am. I belong to you. 
If there's anything you'd like to say or show me today, please do that. I am all yours. Maybe this, before I scroll any social feed or news feed, I will read one passage of scripture and pray that God speaks to my heart in some way. Just one passage, however long or short you want. Maybe this, in the middle of the day, I'll pause and pray for five minutes to acknowledge how God has been at work in the day so far, and I'll ask him to continue using me how he'd like. Or in between tasks and meetings today, I'll take two minutes to sit quietly and ask God to prepare me for what's next. Every time I'm sitting at a stoplight this week, I'll ask God to bring someone to mind that I could pray for. And last, try this. When I'm standing in line somewhere, instead of reaching for my phone, I'll ask God to speak into whatever I'm feeling and thinking about. That's it. I'll just ask him, God, speak into whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm feeling about. I'm not gonna distract myself. I'm not gonna numb the boredom or whatever feeling or thought I'm not wanting to have right now. I'm not gonna numb that or try to escape from that. God, would you just speak into that? Meet me where I'm at. Show me what you have for the rest of the day. Guys, these are like, like silly practical. I get it. And it's like, we, we did this whole, you know, walking through this narrative and it's so, it's so epic and it's so world-changing and life-changing, but I guess I just always have a little bit of dissonance in me because we, we walk through that and celebrate that. And lots of times I'm left waking up on a Monday morning thinking, okay, but what does that really mean? Like for me, like what does that really change? The fact that God is with us, that Jesus is Emmanuel, the fullness of God in bodily form. What does that really change for me? And this is just my best attempt, guys. My, my best attempt to make so practical us presenting ourselves to God and seeing if he doesn't seem more present to us. So church, would you just commit to doing one of those things this week? Take a small step toward being more present to him and see if he doesn't feel more present to you. See if you don't start to experience the presence of Emmanuel, God with us, in a more powerful and consistent way than before. Let me pray. God, we just offer you our deepest gratitude, our thanks, our praise, our, um, our honor. God, we give it all to you because you became uh, flesh and bone in the person of Jesus. You did what only you could do, stepping down from your throne and walking with us in the dust. Because that's what needed to be done to save us and also to restore our relationship with you, the withness that we had with you, the relationship, the presence that we share with you. So God, I'm so thankful. Thankful for everything you did so that I could just talk to you right now and you would listen. And you're closer to me than my own skin. God, the things you had to do so that I could have the relationship with you that I have, I am so, I'm, I'm humbled, I'm honored, I'm blown away at your love and your mercy and your pursuit of us as a, as a human race and me personally. God, thank you so much for doing that. Thanks for, for arriving on earth and for every next step you took toward the cross, toward your death and your resurrection. And thank you, God, for your presence with us right now. I pray that this week we might do something small to make ourselves more present to you and that we might experience your presence in a big way because of that. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.